listener production. Hi, I'm Dave Gleeson and this is These Days, the greatest moments in Australian music and we're up to episode three. Daniel Johns is a genius. <laughs> we love you, Dan. He was our first bona fide rock star. So far in this series, we've seen Aussie rock music embrace at home, then exported overseas to wild success. But by the early 90s, everything would change. Ladies and gentlemen, Nirvana. A new genre would emerge as a reaction to the stadium rock excess and hair metal bands of the previous decade. And Australia would have their own international grunge superstars straight out of high school. Hi, this is Daniel from Silverchair. And our biggest success story of the 80s in excess would begin the new decade on a high, but end it in tragedy. Detectives have taken into possession a leather belt uh, for scientific examination. Uh, It would appear that there are no suspicious circumstances. The impact and the effect of Michael passing at that particular time, stopped us dead in our tracks. In Excess's follow-up album to the million-selling kick was called X and dominated global charts in 1990. The single Suicide Blonde, inspired by frontman Michael Hutchins' new girlfriend Kylie Minogue, returned them to the top ten in the US. And they were living large, as their longtime producer Mark Opitz recalls. They became superstars, so the X tour was like full-on stadiums and they invited me to... uh, Michael rang me up, I think, and said, um, mate, you've been there from the beginning, come with us. We've got private jets, we've got everything this time. We're not doing buses anymore. While In Excess was still on top of the world, they were joined by another Australian band on the global charts at the start of the 90s. Australian band Divinals had enjoyed cult success during the 80s, but they finally found their international breakthrough in 1990 with a song called I Touch Myself. Chrissy Amphlett's lyrics about self-love saw the track banned in many territories, which didn't stop it reaching number four in the US, top ten in the UK and number one in Australia. Here is the late, great Chrissy Amphlett. I think Australians should never compromise because the groups that have really made it and have made it in a really big way haven't at all, really. I think that, you know, they've kept their integrity and their, right. their style. And the groups that maybe think that you have to compromise and be really sort of like diluted and watery don't last. I Touch Myself remains a classic, one that new generations continue to discover. Here's Lisa from the Veronicas on what the song means to her. Our mum played us the Divinals I Touch Myself for the first time, probably at a young age, to be honest. Our mum was, was pretty progressive in rock and roll. So we have a deep love for Chrissy Amphlett. Here's Killing Heidi's Ella Hooper. They are such a unique band, uh, sometimes not an instantly recognisable Australian band, but I really respect that. Like they had an international level cool to me. Um, And of course they were very Australian in in many ways, but there is just this charisma and this writing that it goes a bit outside the bounds of rock and roll, it goes a bit outside the bounds of pop and when it all comes together, you don't know what you're listening to but it's just like the best thing you've ever heard. As the Divinals were topping the charts, In Excess were also making big moves. Flushed with cash after the success of Kick, In Excess's manager Chris Murphy started a record label called Ruart with backing from major label Polygram. Here's Triple M's Matty O. Ruart had some success with indie bands, but by 1991, they'd be a major player in the Australian music industry during a real cultural change. 
And this is where I join the story. My band, The Screaming Jets, formed in Newcastle and we played a whole lot of shows around pubs, including some pretty intense gigs. The gigs that come to mind for me really are the Selena's shows that we did for the Battle of the Bands that we won in 1990, and that brought us the attention of quite a few record labels. Then we moved to Sydney where we opened for the Angels. In 1990, we were signed by Ruart, and the following year, our single Better was top five on the ARIA charts. Then our first album, All For One, peaked at number two. A bloody Eurythmics Greatest Hits album just wouldn't budge out of the top spot. The very same week Better was sitting at number four in May 1991, Ruart scored their first ARIA number one single, and it was a hit that, looking back, was a turning point. The label had signed Sydney indie trio Ratcat, who were inspired by American thrash punk pioneers, the Ramones. These guys would go on to warm the seat for Nirvana. Hi, this is Simon from Ratcat. Frontman Simon Day wanted to marry his love of punky guitars with pop music. Well, I mean, for me... To, to have a really distorted guitar and a beautiful melody all happening at once is like a joyous thing. <laughs> After a big marketing push, Ratcat's Tingles EP featuring the hit That Ain't Bad hit number one on the ARIA chart. And here's Triple M's Matteo. Ratcat had done something incredible, taken alternative rock to the mainstream. And they were number one in Australia four months before Nirvana had even released Smells Like Teen Spirit. They'd gone from mosh pits and mohawks to having their posters in smash hits and on teenage bedroom walls. Nirvana wouldn't chart in Australia until November 1991, and while we'd had alternative bands in the past like Hoodoo Gurus and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, this marked the start of a new era where alt music was mainstream. Music manager John Watson said, it's hard for people to understand now that there used to be two very different worlds in music. What happened in sort of the early 90s was that the inner city bands kind of just arrived like a tsunami and became the mainstream. And Nirvana is sort of always thought of as the tipping point there. And on a global level, they were. But from an Australian perspective, it actually happened probably a bit earlier than that. I mean, there were bands who would cross over. Paul Kelly and the Hoodoo Gurus would be examples of it. But Ratcat were probably the first one to really go from being sort of inner city darlings to huge suburban King of the Kids band in the space of about a year um, with their uh, with their Tingles um, EP and and they really sort of ushered in a new era that then brought Cruel Sea and later Silverchair, UMI, Powderfinger, a whole bunch of bands that kind of thought of themselves as heirs to a different Australian music tradition. Mark Opitz was producing In Excess's album, Welcome to Wherever You Are, when Michael Hutchins took a night off to go and see Nirvana. The influence on In Excess was instant. Obviously came back saying, yeah, this is the future. This is the way it's going. And so, you know, we were deep into Welcome to Wherever You Are at that point, you know, and I guess our nod to them would have been um, heaven sent to a degree. And then I can remember mix you know distorting the vocals and the band saying whoa that's too much distortion so i had to actually dial it back a little bit just to satisfy them because i was still living in okay the nice sounding music as well as where grunge was coming from but in excess started to question whether they fitted into the music scene once grunge took over their last album had been a critical success but america didn't get it opitz says the band's decision to not tour the record was a huge mistake especially as their contemporaries like U2 and Bon Jovi stayed on the road during the height of grunge. They took a big hit in terms of, you know, move to the side. And and even though Welcome to Where We Are was went number one in, uh, 
the UK went number one in most European countries. It didn't, you know, because grunge had taken over America at that point, it didn't register in America, so we didn't get where we wanted to go with that there, and particularly without touring. So, it, you know, grunge had a, a, a big effect on many bands. NXS would do a Back to Basics pub tour to usher in their next album, Full Moon, Dirty Hearts, released at the end of 93, but their global success was waning. Before recording the album in Capri, Michael Hutchins had fractured his skull after he was assaulted by a taxi driver in Copenhagen. Here's Triple M's Cat Lynch. Michael's injuries included losing his sense of smell and taste and then obviously led to aggressive outbursts against his own bandmates in the recording studio and the accident just completely changed him. By the time In Excess reunited to tour their 1997 album Elegantly Wasted, they were celebrating their 20th anniversary together. The band arrived back in Australia and did a press conference to announce their homecoming tour. But sadly, on November 27, Michael Hutchins was found dead in his Sydney hotel room. Michael's good mate Jimmy Barnes recalls where he was when he heard the shocking news. I was in the recording studio actually with Cole Chisel in, in, uh, in Sydney and uh, my wife rang me. She was, uh, she was in the hairdressers at the Ritz-Carlton there, downstairs. And there was all this talk, they're saying, oh, they found somebody dead in Michael's room. And Jane thought, oh, Christ, I've had a wild party and something's happened, you know. And, you know, I thought it was somebody else, of course. Um, and then Michael Gadinsky rang up and, and said, is it true? And Jane said, yeah, yeah, they found someone dead in his room. And, and then um, and Michael said, no, I think it's Michael. And, of course, she freaked out and rang me immediately. So I, did, I, you know, I didn't know what to, what to make of it. So um, I, just, I rang the Ritz-Carlton, actually, and just said, it's Jimmy Barnes here. I, I believe a friend of mine's had an accident there. And, um, and they said they couldn't tell yet, and so it, made, it was really ominous. You know, they, I said, can I speak to the manager? He said, no, he's too busy. That made it even worse, you know. Mm. So eventually, you know, eventually we found out, but it was just, you know, such a tragedy. Can't believe it, you know. Here's Cav Templey of Eskimo Joe on Michael's legacy. He was our first, and possibly only, I don't think only, but he was our first bona fide rock star, and everyone wanted to be him, you know. And coming from an era where Australia wasn't cool, and now Australia's cool, which is great, but he really, you know, like from bands like, you know, U2 to, you know, everyone, they all wanted to imitate him. And that is amazing. And so for him to pass away was really, truly sad, but his legacy will clearly live on forever. While Ratcat had opened for an excess on their X tour, they'd quickly moved into a headliner role. That tour was named Invasion of the Dinosaur Killers, referencing the belief that alternative and grunge bands were wiping out established rock acts. Here's Sarah McLeod from the Super Jesus on Ratcat. Ratcat came on the scene so quickly and so massively. Uh, I think it was around about early 90s. I remember seeing Ratcat for the first time when I went to see In Excess at Memorial Drive in Adelaide, and Ratcat supported them. And they were so good, and they had so many good songs. And I was working at Mr. Music, a record store at the time, and we sold their EP Tingles, and we couldn't buy enough of them. It was probably the highest selling record next to Bad Out of Hell that we had in store. So I became a really big fan. Grunge had trickled down to Australia, and our record labels were suddenly fascinated by the underground and indie scene. Watson, who'd worked in record stores and as a music journo, found himself scouted by major label Sony to head their cool indie division. When I started doing A&R for Sony, it was explicitly on the basis that I'd been brought in to find their version of Nirvana and, and Ratcat. And every record company around the world was doing the same thing. You know, the, the music business is, is, if you look back on it over, you know, 50 or 60 years, the same cycle repeats, which is that the kids fall in love with something that the grown-ups don't understand. The grown-ups go scrambling along behind it, trying desperately to find a way to make a quit out of it. 
And once they've actually managed to kind of figure out how to do it, the kids all get bored with it and go and find something else. So the, the, the middle-aged people at a record company are constantly kind of having to employ people in their 20s who can at least speak the language. Bidding wars started for young indie bands who might blow up the way Nirvana or Pearl Jam did. Sydney band UMI were quickly snapped up. Hello, this is Tim Rogers and David Lane from UMI, the best Australian band to not make it big internationally since Cold Chisel. Their second album, Hi-Fi Way, debuted at number one on the ARIA charts in 1995. Their next two albums would also top the charts. The cultural change in music had taken effect. Here's Killing Heidi's Ella Hooper on being a kid during the rise of grunge. I remember hearing Today by the Smashing Pumpkins and then I remember hearing Nirvana and realising, ooh, what, what was so exciting about Today and the Pumpkins had sort of been built on and blasted up to another degree and that music was getting heavier, it was getting louder and it was getting much, much, much more contrasted. Each song that I was hearing that was a big hit and that I was loving had a real soft, hard, soft and that just became the go-to, the palette for the next 10 years. In Brisbane, a young band named after a Neil Young song became the next big unsigned thing. Hello, I'm Bernard Fanning. They call themselves Powderfinger, and frontman Bernard Fanning remembers the early 90s rebooting the concept of Australian pub rock. We were cut playing, like, indie club world more than, like, the big pub barn world. But I guess that was kind of the beginning of a new type of pub rock. <laughs> you know, the, all the big established bands and the, you know, Midnight Oils, the Cold Chisels, all those guys had done the, the really genuine kind of hub rock, I guess, in the 80s. And it was a continuation of that. It was just in, on a smaller scale, I guess. It was just kind of that thing of, in Australia then, you had to be good live, or people just didn't, people just ignored you. You weren't good live, you, there was no point, really. Powderfinger signed to Polydor and Reap What You Sow was a minor hit in 93. But the band overcomplicated their first album, Parables for Wooden Ears, with complex arrangements and it peaked at number 51 in 1994. One salty critic wrote they had disappeared up their own asses. Bernard Fanning admits he agreed with the harsh assessment. Yeah, I remember that one. That was genius. <laughs> we had a long way to develop from our first record. Let's put it that way. Because it's not, it's not an amazing piece of work. Um, uh, we were... We were heavily influenced by things that were going on around us at the time. And, and I think that, that proved to us that we needed to go back to where our instincts were instead of, instead of what um, was happening around us. Powderfinger regrouped and decided to listen to their gut, stripping back their songs to be more impactful. And it worked. In 1996, Pick You Up became their breakthrough hit and their second album, Double Allergic, went triple platinum. Two years later, Internationalist became their first number one album. However, Bernard Fanning knows the band had the luxury of developing in the public eye. I mean, we were probably one of the last bands in Australia that, that was signed on a, what was called a development deal in those days, where it was a five-album deal. And, and, you know, in those days, I think they didn't have any expectation that anything would really happen until about their third record, there'd be like a bit of a build towards, you know, maybe then then you start getting regular airplay. You might have a record that was in the top 20. Well, I don't know. There, there was, I'm sure they had their, their, all of their KPIs in place, whatever they, they were. But 
We didn't know anything about that. Powderfinger hit the burgeoning indie festival circuit of the 90s playing all-Australian festival home bake plus livid and the big day out. We love big day out. The hottest show in town, the big day out. For us to have the opportunity to come around the other side of the world and play for y'all is a dream. The big day out launched in 1992 and would change the Australian live music scene forever. It seemed too good to be true for one day. You literally were the centre of the musical world. You had it at your doorstep. Standing in a crowd, you feel the earth moving because there's so many feet just jumping. It was just insane. Just like the promoter who lucked out on booking the Beatles for an Aussie tour just before they became the biggest band in the world, the Big Day Out signed up Nirvana before Nevermind had exploded. And by the time Nirvana played the Big Day Out in early 1992, they had the number one album in the world. Here's Cat Lynch. Suddenly they had the biggest band in the world that weren't even headliners. They were actually playing second. But it was mayhem of people trying to get tickets to this gig to see the greatest band that was visiting Australia. You can imagine the organisers thinking, is this band going to show up? They've become the biggest thing ever. They've signed on to the first year of this festival they've never heard of. But they did it. They came. They flew halfway around the world to be there. They were incredible and they really put Big Day Out on the map. Australian bands would quickly learn the art of creating a special festival set tailored to win over people who didn't necessarily come to see you, as Bernard Fanning explains. It takes you a while, I think, as an artist to come around to the idea that those shows, you need to play the stuff that people know. It's, it's not an art experiment. You can do that at the culture center, you know. Um, festivals are pretty, pretty straightforward in that regard. You can still put on a really interesting show visually and all that sort of stuff, but in terms of the actual material that you play, you don't want to get so clever that you just tear up your own eyes. <laughs> the Big Day Out also gave our bands a chance to mix with overseas heroes. Ella Hooper sets the scene for us. Backstage at the Big Day Out, I've not known anything else like it. So when it was at its peak back in the Big Day Out days, you know, the Chili Peppers were fraternising backstage with Rammstein, the German metal band, threw me in a pool once. They picked me up and chucked me in an ice pool, fully clothed after our set. There was a faux marriage proposal from a Chili Pepper to me at, like, 17. I don't think they knew I was 17. Otherwise, uh, there would have been a problem. But all sorts of crazy stuff. So the living end singer Chris Cheney being backstage the year Marilyn Manson played was eye-opening and not in a good way. I remember one time, because the Manic Street Preachers, who were a favourite band of mine, were on that tour as well, I think, or maybe one of the earlier ones that Marilyn Manson was on. Someone had organised for us to to meet the Manics because I just wanted to, like, get some records signed and get a photo and all that sort of stuff, just total fanboy out. And we're waiting outside their room and I've got my camera and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And Marilyn Manson was in there and he walked out and he saw me with the camera. He's like, yeah, all right, come on, let's get a photo then. And kind of kind of grabbed the camera and like took a selfie. And I was like, man, I, I'm not here for you. I don't want a photo with you. I didn't say this to him because it all just happened in an instant. I was like, how's the nerve on that guy? And the big day out was where Australia's answer to Nirvana would cut their teeth with their parents watching on. Hey, this is Chris. And I'm Ben. I'm Daniel. And we're Silverchair. In 1992, three Newcastle kids aged 11 and 12 form a band called Innocent Criminals. Two years later, they won a national competition for school-based bands where the prize is to record a demo. One song from that demo, Tomorrow, wins another competition and the industry buzz ignites. They changed their name to Silverchair 
and find Michael Gadinsky's Mushroom Records and Sony's Indie Arm Murmur, run by John Watson, desperate to sign them. Um, Silverchair was certainly massively helped by the fact that they got to play the big day out before Frog Stomp even came out at the start of 1995. In keeping with the band's sort of um, desire to not look like they're getting ahead of themselves and to keep their feet on the ground, uh, they were booked to play for, you know, a minuscule four-figure fee on the second or third biggest stage uh, at about three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, but it just made it even more of an event because, you know, there were people climbing up lamp posts to, to see them. There was a, a guy famously swung, you know, 50 feet above the crowd in Sydney, taking his life into his own hands in Melbourne. They, there were so many people packed onto the roof next to the venue at the old showgrounds that the roof collapsed. So people were jumping off the roof next to the stage onto the roof of the stage and then down into the crowd in order to escape the collapsing roof. It was crazy, absolutely crazy. U2's booking agent at the time was standing at front of house watching the pandemonium before the band even walked on stage and turned to me and said, I want to book the band. I'm like, they haven't started playing yet. Watson would soon leave Sony to manage Silverchair as they secured international record deals. Here's Triple M's Cat Lynch. It's incredible to think the band were only 15 when they recorded their first album, Frog Stomp. It was number one in Australia and they became the first Australian band since In Excess to score a US top 10 album. And from what I heard, there was actually meant to be a fourth member and one of their high school mates. And their mum said no, said the band's going to go nowhere, don't bother. And so that poor kid, I don't know where he's ended up now, but I'm sure he has regrets. From the get-go, Silverchair did things on their own terms, saying no to mainstream TV shows like Hey Hey It's Saturday. We were acutely conscious of the fact that their age on the surface seemed like um, an asset because it made people curious about them. But if you stopped and thought about it for a second longer, it was actually a really big problem because they were a good band full stop. They weren't just a good band for 15-year-olds. They were a good band, period. Um, And the age got in the way of people seeing that. So most of what um, we did around the first record in particular was to try to avoid focusing on their age. You know, we didn't have glossy photos of them. We didn't have posters. The band, it's hard to imagine now, but the band never appeared on TV until the very, very end of that record when they played on the the ARIA Awards. And even then they didn't get up and, and accept their awards in person because they would have had to have spoken and then they were very obviously 15. And Silverchair's talent did not go unnoticed among their peers. Chris Cheney was just starting the living end as Silverchair were exploding. I loved Silverchair from the beginning. From the beginning. I, the first time I, I ever heard them and saw them, I was like everyone else. I was like, no way. <laughs> like These guys are so good. And, you know, obviously the first thing I knew about them was that they were young, you know, and then you, you sort of... I think maybe I'd seen a picture or I'd heard people talking about it, but then I actually heard them and I heard Daniel sing and I was like, Jesus, these guys are incredible. Like, you know, just um, so unique to be that good because I remember when we were 14 and we were terrible, terrible. They were already good. From the word go, they just kind of had it. Um, and I, I'm a huge um, admirer of of them and, and their career and of and of, of their the way that they evolved from, from that, that earliest record. And that creative development was no accident. For their manager, it was all about playing the long game with Silverchair. And even on the road in the US, they'd have tutors on the tour bus. So they made a lot of inroads uh, internationally, despite the fact they were only able to do 
probably, you know, a fifth to a tenth of the touring because for the first three years of their career, they were at school. So touring was put largely into school holidays. They took a few extra weeks off here and there, thanks to the help of a tutor. But it was still a career built with one arm tied behind their back as well. Bernard Fanning remembers playing with Silverchair early on. He says they cop flack from a cynical music industry. They were a really good band from the start. I mean, that's that was the key. I mean, there was lots of, I guess, novelty attached to them at the beginning because I was so young because, um, you know, there was all the Nirvana comparisons, which was absolutely garbage anyway because I didn't sound like Nirvana. But they were always really good. They were great players and they, their instincts for songs were, were really strong. They were, they were really good. And, you know, what I, I think John Watson had, he, he knew how to, how to deal with them and importantly with their families at the time because they, they were really young, early. 14ers. Silverchair's overseas success again put Australian music on the global map. However, intense fame at a young age took its toll, especially on Daniel Johns. Extremely sensitive, he struggled with the worst aspects of the industry. Missy Higgins, who shared a record label and management with Daniel, said the musician is not wired like most. I think he seems to live and breathe music and yeah, someone that lives like that is going to burn out fast. I think it must be kind of scary and exhausting to live inside Daniel's brain. He just seems to be one of those people that lives to the extremes, but is also a really, really sensitive soul and can't quite handle the world. It's a little bit too bright and colourful and loud for him. So he seems to retreat into songwriting and partying and there's not many geniuses like that in the world, but I don't envy that that headspace. And Jesse from Australian duo The Veronicas agrees when it comes to Daniel's talents. Daniel Johns is a genius. We had the opportunity as The Veronicas to work with Daniel a few years back and being in a room with someone that is incredible enigma of songwriting, of performance. He was the most vulnerable, beautiful channeling songwriter that I've ever been in the room with. Lisa and I were completely blown away by his musicality, by his ability to just seemingly pull melodies and things that I would, my brain would never concept out of thin air. Um, he's a true composer. He uh, just, I absolutely love him. I think he's a beautiful soul and um, an absolute inspiration. Hey dudes. We are The Living End. In Melbourne by 1995, The Living End were getting attention, blagging a spot opening for Green Day. However, in that second wave of alternative music, The Living End, who were inspired by 50s rockabilly, were miles away from grunge. Here's The Living End's Chris Chaney. Yeah, we stood out like something that stands out on the back of a dog. (laughs) Uh, When we used to play at our very, very early shows, like at, um, you know, we do all these university gigs at lunchtime and stuff, you know, we got up there like full of energy, standing on the bass, guitar solos, hair done up. They didn't get it, I I don't think, at first. I, I think half the crowd thought we were like something that should have been in happy days and the other half just kind of didn't even pay any attention and it just didn't click, which is what was so crazy about, you know, you fast forward like two years later Prisoner of Society became a hit and all of a sudden all those bands that we had been supporting who had, you know, 200 people following them, we thought they'd made it, all of a sudden we had a line around the block. And yes, that song, Prisoner of Society, would spend nearly a year inside the top 50 during 1997. The Living End self-titled debut went four times platinum in Australia 
and turned them into a cult act in Europe and the US. Chaney recalls one of his rock fantasy moments, one that took them from Collingwood to Hollywood. The guy who had flown into Australia, you know, during that big sort of hype period and managed to sign the band. I remember him coming up to me afterwards and going, you've done it, you've arrived now, you know, you've made it kind of thing. And I just remember going, wow, in Hollywood, sold out show. Three years earlier, you know, we were playing at the tote to not many people at a, you know, on a Tuesday afternoon rock against work thing. And all of a sudden here we were, and it was just mind blowing. Now you didn't need to channel Seattle to sell a lot of records in the nineties. Sydney band Baby Animals were fronted by Suze DeMarchi, who tried her luck as a pop singer in the UK and returned home wanting to make something a bit more real. Here's Cat Lynch. Susie DeMarchi might be one of the greatest lead singers we have in Australia. And I had a family friend that had never heard of her, walked in while she was performing in, in the Northern Beaches, one of the bars in there, and she actually mesmerised the crowd to the point where everyone stopped what they were doing, stopped getting a drink when they came on stage. And later on, I think, when I saw her as more of a teenager into my early 20s, I remember thinking, this woman is rad. This is If you wanted to be a rock star, I had no musical talent, but if you wanted to be a rock star, she was... I guess someone you would look up to as a female on that stage doing her own thing and not really giving two tosses about what anyone thought about her, which I thought was wonderful. They released their self-titled debut just before Nirvana exploded and the album spent six weeks at number one in Australia in 1992, keeping Nirvana's Nevermind stuck at number two. They were touring with Van Halen in the US. When they got the call, they'd top the charts. We were backstage ready to go on and... Our manager came up and told us that we'd gone to number one in Australia and that was that was a really thrilling time. And I always just remember that clearly as being a really amazing, um, amazing moment. Paul Kelly, one of our finest singer-songwriters, remained untouched by grunge, becoming increasingly popular in the 90s. It was a decade he released a future Christmas classic, How to Make Gravy, and played a part in a truly groundbreaking hit. Paul co-wrote Treaty with Arnhem Land rock band Yotu Yindi, a remix by Melbourne DJ's Filthy Luca saw it become the first Indigenous song, including lyrics in their own tongue, to cross over into the mainstream chart. Yeah, working with uh, Unipengus up there and you know, and also a very young Dr G when he was just a teenager when I first went up there to work with them, worked with them on their second record. That was a great experience in many ways and I guess writing Treaty was just, you know, one part of that. And, you know, it's a, it's a long and interesting story, the writing of Treaty, because it was sort of one of those songs with many hands on it, starting off with me and um, yeah, Dr. M, Unipingu, and, and then, you know, taking it to the band and then taking it to Peter Garrett and, and, then, um, and then it being remixed by Filthy Luca. So it's a, a long and fascinating story, but it, I'm very, very uh, yeah, happy to be part of that one. Meanwhile, in a tiny town in regional Victoria, Two teenage siblings were watching Silverchair swap school for the charts and they wanted in. Hi, this is Ella. And this is Jessie. From Killing Heidi. Ella Hooper was only 13 when she and brother Jessie, who was 15, started playing gigs as Killing Heidi in 1996. Their sound was folk meat squunge and they built up a following playing anywhere they could get a gig. Killing Heidi's first gigs were Fates, school barbecues, this or that. So, you know, I think we played on the back of a truck once for Yeroa Wool Week. And that was a big gig for us in the early days. But it really all clicked into place. Our first big gig was, I think, Pushover 98, when we did make it down to the Big Smoke and we played our very first 
full rock and roll festival set. We absolutely stuffed up. Two songs started in the wrong key. I nearly cried and it was like a huge learning experience, but I'll also never forget it. And we were sharing the stage, you know, later on that day, bands like Silverchair were playing. So we were just blown away. I had gone to see them as my first rock and roll concert like the year before. And yeah, next thing we know, we were playing with them. By the time Killing Heidi's debut single, Weir, dropped in 1999, the momentum around them saw it hit number six in the Aria chart. The follow-up, a rock track called Mascara, went all the way to number one. However, coming up in that time of cool, Killing Heidi also endured the ugly side of success. It's always a double-edged sword success in Australia and maybe more so back then in the 90s. The tall poppy syndrome was a very real thing and the one thing you didn't want to be in the 90s was a try-hard, you know, and selling out was the worst thing you could do. So I've had my time wrestling and, you know, reckoning with the concept of being a sellout or being too successful or being too mainstream, which were all issues for teenagers back then, you know, and could potentially damage your credibility. But how I have dealt with that and countered that is by going through it. You know, all things change with time and now nobody even thinks like that and I'm still here. So I just went the long way round. <laughs> and after 25 years in the business, Ella still remembers the simple joy of hearing we on radio for the very first time. It's pretty funny. I was on the school bus, bouncing down a dusty, long country road with all my little teenage friends going to high school. And then it happened. You know, we heard our own song on the bus and the other kids were so excited. And it was a pretty good memory, actually. But I'm sure I was a little bit mortified as well as any 13-year-old would be. Hearing her song on the bus might have been a life-changing moment for Ella Hooper. But as the industry moved into a new millennium, a technological advancement would change everyone's lives. But was it for better or worse? I'm Dave Gleeson and you've been listening to These Days, the greatest moments in Australian music. Coming up in our final episode, we'll look at how technology made the world a whole lot smaller and what bands had to do to survive in the digital age. If you hit TikTok with the right 15, 20 second grab, you got 25 million people in 20 minutes. This episode was produced by Georgie Page, written by Cameron Adams, audio production by Mike Santos. Special thanks to Ella Hooper, Chris Cheney, Cav Templey, Mark Opitz, John Watson, Missy Higgins, Paul Kelly, the Veronicas, Matteo and Cat Lynch. Listener.